0: I would have a very quick agenda. We need to back off these trade wars and stay away from auto tariffs. This would be economic disaster. Congress needs to reassert itself and its authority over trade policy and stop this administration from making these irresponsible threats.
1: Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. First up, don't panic. What's on tap didn't go away, but it has moved to the end of the episode, so make sure you stick around after our conversation on trade policy today to catch up with the latest from Mercatus and the beer that we're drinking this week. That's too much exposition already, so let's jump into the conversation. The last time we talked about trade was back in April, right about the time China started to threaten new taxes on imported American products. That, of course, was a response to our own new taxes imposed on imported steel and aluminum. A lot has happened since April, including a planned replacement for the North American Free Trade Agreement, and a new Democratic majority in the House of Representatives may change the trajectory of trade policy even further. Here to help us unpack the current state of trade policy in the U.S. and abroad, and maybe even make some predictions about where it could be headed in the future, I'm pleased to welcome Dan Griswold and Pierre Lemieux to the show. Dan is the co-director of our trade and immigration portfolio here at the Mercatus Center, the author of the book, Mad About Trade, Why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization, and most importantly, a repeat guest here on The Download. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Glad to be here. Pierre Lemieux is a senior research scholar here at Mercatus. He's a frequent university lecturer in Canada and recently published the book, What's Wrong with Protectionism? A Response to Common Objections to Free Trade. Welcome aboard, Pierre. It's my pleasure. So we're going to spend a lot of time in this conversation, probably talking about current policy events and where the world is right now. But before we get there, I want to take a step back for a second and just give our listeners some insight into the two of you and how you approach this issue. So you've both written, as I mentioned in the introduction, books on trade policy. I think the natural question for a lot of our listeners will be, why? You know, what was going on out in the world such that you stopped one day and said, well, golly, I better write a book about this stuff?
2: Well, exchange is a very important and basic phenomenon in uh, inter-individual relations and exchange, part of exchange is trade, exchanging goods and services. So either if you are interested in economics or if you are interested in liberty, trade is a very important topic. And uh, it happens that uh, the freedom of trade is being uh, very much questioned these days in many countries in the world. So it's even more important, I think, to think and talk about it now than it has ever been.
0: I I would agree with all of that. Uh, Yeah, I I wrote Mad About Trade in 2009 when I was at the Cato Institute because, one, there was a lot of nonsense floating out there and bad ideas about trade as there is now. But I saw a disconnect, and that is – uh, the arguments in favor of trade, while they were economically sound, were made at a kind of higher academic level. And the, the proponents of protectionism were kind of claiming Main Street. Yes, Wall Street and the economists think trade is good, but what about the people on Main Street? Well, I think all the arguments for free trade apply to Main Street just as much as Wall Street. You know, the consumer benefits, the fact that trade allows us to specialize more in what we're best at and that creates jobs not just on Wall Street but on Main Street in terms of more competitive manufacturing the agricultural sector all those things and so i tried to make my arguments that were make my arguments economically sound but also put them in ways that the average person could better relate to
2: that's our challenge isn't it yes To express good economic ideas, which we tend to be convinced about because, uh, be convinced of because we've studied the question, but then explain this to, you know, people who don't make this a job in their life to know about society, the economy and trade.
1: I would certainly second that and I think that's a good segue as we're talking about Pierre I think you said you know freedom of trade is being questioned right now and I think that's a fair way to characterize the current policy environment and so our our listeners the way they're engaging in the trade policy discussion is by hearing sort of updates in the news and trying to follow along with what the United States is doing and what countries are doing in response. I think the last time we talked about trade on the show, again, back in April, we were kind of just starting to get an idea about what the back and forth between the US and China might look like. We've had several months now of of that back and forth. We've kind of got a little bit better sense of what policymakers in the US and China are doing. I'm kind of curious from your all's perspective, do we have any more clarity on how this plays out? Or is it still sort of a, a holding pattern, a waiting and seeing until someone is willing to to change course at this point?
0: You know, Chad, quite a bit has changed and not, I have to say, for the better since we last talked about trade in, in April. The steel tariffs have become pretty much comprehensive. They just started out with some smaller countries, but now they've expanded to the European Union, Canada, and Mexico, and they have retaliated. So U.S. bourbon producers and others are feeling the sting of that Harley Davidson and others the China tariffs have expanded they started out at about 50 billion and China responded that's what we were talking about in April since then the Chinese or the US government and in particular the Trump administration I should say all this emanates basically from the White House and a few trade advisors around the president we've expanded that by 200 billion dollars So $250 billion of imports from China, basically half the goods we import from China, are now subject to tariffs. Those are set to ramp up from 10% to 25% on January 1st, and then the administration's threatening to expand them to all our imported goods uh, from China. Meanwhile, the president is... Building the case within its administration, even though there is no case, to impose duties on imported automobiles in the name of national security, as though a Mercedes-Benz coming in <laughs> from Germany is somehow threatening our national security, that will affect $360 billion worth of imports. It'll make the steel imports look uh, like a minor irritation. It'll be several-fold uh, greater in terms of the economic impact. So things have gone in a way, from bad to worse. Although the recent elections and some other things maybe will point us in a different direction, but that uh, we can get to that later in the show.
2: People also have started uh, being knowing that they are affected by the trade war. As we know, you know, farmers, uh, soybeans farmers have been very uh, much hit by the by the tariffs. And well, it does, you know, the same for uh, uh, manufacturers, you know, use steel or aluminum who have been hit by the tariffs. So, it, no, it, it while it was not obvious in April, now it's obvious that it is wrong to say that uh, trade wars are easy to win. Right? Trade wars are not easy to win. Now, it is still true that ordinary men or women. Still has not has been hit very much, but, you know, this is going to become more and more obvious, you know, as the, you know, as manufactured, as the prices of manufactured goods increase, you know, when, uh, when consumers will realize that appliances, uh, home appliances whose prices have been decreasing for something like two decades are starting to increase again uh, when they are going to realize that the uh, sporting goods they buy at uh, Walmart or at Cabela, you know, fishing rods, for instance, uh, have increased in price, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, of course, cars, you know, that, would be, that yes. would be a very important acceleration in the trade war. So people have started, but they are still not realizing the full extent of what's seen to be developing now.
1: Just to spend some time maybe on what has changed, Dan, you kind of prompted us, and I mentioned in the introduction, by noting that there has been an election. So there is some sort of shift in politics. I think there's not a clear consensus on what that actually means for Trade policy necessarily on the the one hand you could say well the opposition party is presumably going to oppose current policy on the other hand there's not a clear track record of the congressional democrats supporting free trade policies so you don't have to put on your you know political prognostication hats but just thinking from what you've seen uh, any public statements or any policy in the past. Do you expect Congress to finally sort of intercede and step up in its sort of trade policy role, or or, or is that just going to be a non-factor?
0: Here's a few things I think we do know. Protectionism is not swelling up from the general public. Polls show that the the American public is actually more supportive of free trade than they've been for years, and they've always been kind of in a qualified way in favor of it. The protectionism we're struggling with today is a top-down phenomenon coming basically from the White House. Secondly, it's not a big election issue. There were other things driving this election, the president, healthcare, that sort of thing. I do wonder, though, if it wasn't a factor in some of the Midwestern elections. Pierre mentioned the soybean tariffs in retaliation. The Republicans didn't do that well in the upper Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. And then finally, uh, the biggest news out of the election was the House changing from Republican control to Democratic control. I think that does have some implications, in particular for the revised NAFTA, what uh, the administration's calling the uh, USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. And that is, this is just a fact, uh, generally most Republicans in the House have over the years voted in favor of trade agreements. Most Democrats have voted against them. Uh, Now you've got the party that's generally been skeptical of trade agreements in control of of the House. And so I predict, I don't predict the revised NAFTA will fail or pass, but I do think it's going to have a, a harder uphill climb with a Democratic House. One, they're more skeptical of trade. Most Democrats never supported NAFTA. Secondly, just purely politically, they aren't going to be in any hurry to give this president a win that he might tout in running in 2020. So I think for the White House, I don't think the protectionist clouds have gotten any darker but i think for the white house getting the revised nafta passed has gotten more complicated
2: i don't know if the protectionist clouds have not got a bit darker uh, because now you know we have the two parties one that controls the house one that controls the senate and the presidency we have the two parties officially against free trade or as officially as they as they ever were in 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 recent memory uh, it is indeed a very remarkable fact and i think a fact on which we should reflect that bernie sanders is as much a protectionist as uh, donald trump is yes. so um you know this should invite a reflection you know a basic reflection on you know what is free trade and uh, i think that people should or we should help people realize that free trade is just part of economic freedom. You know, it's as much the freedom, it should be as much the freedom of an American to import clothes from Thailand as it is his freedom or steal from Canada, as it is his freedom to to import uh, agricultural products from, uh, say, Mississippi. Even if, by the way, wages are 40% lower in Mississippi than in California, you know, it's not a sufficient reason to say that uh, we are being, uh, we are competing against uh, people, against low-cost producers. So I think that it has turned out a bit for the worse. Perhaps there is an opportunity then, you know, to show people that free trade is not something in another universe. You know, it's part of economic freedom. And the fact that both Democrats and Republicans and Congress, which doesn't have an especially a good reputation in the public, is against free trade, should perhaps lead people, you know, to uh, wonder whether indeed free trade is not a good thing.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that, That Pierre. They, historically, the Republicans have, they, you know, they used to be the protectionist party 50, 100 years ago. They've come around and have been generally more supportive. But, Chad, you asked, is there any hope that Congress is going to stand up to the administration on trade? I mean, uh, Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the exclusive authority to regulate commerce with foreign nations to impose duties. This president has, I think, abused the authority that Congress has given to to the executive. You know, re- Republicans, I think, were uneasy with the president's trade initiatives but they didn't want to stand up to him because he's of their own party. Democrats want to stand up to Trump, but on trade, they, they broadly agree with him. So in that sense, I'm not very hopeful that Congress is going to reassert itself on trade.
2: Yes, but then perhaps not reinserting itself would uh, would be a win because you know I, I believe that uh, NAFTA 2.0 is worse than NAFTA, than the original NAFTA. You know, they are, uh, well, rules of origins actually uh, protect uh, American uh, 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 steel industry and auto industry uh, much more than they did before. We, you know, American negotiators, and probably with the complicity of Canadian ones, have succeeded uh, forcing uh, the Mexican government to... to, uh, more or less impose a minimum wage to uh, Mexican auto workers. So, you know, I think it is more managed trade than NAFTA was. And actually, you know, the Wall Street Journal said this in a brilliant editorial, you know, it's, it's, it's a step, you know, NAFTA too is a step towards managed trade. So what I hope is that indeed, Congress is going to reject uh, the USMCA, then, you know, of course, NAFTA has not been abrogated, has not been repealed. So we would uh, revert to NAFTA. Now, whether the president can then and will politically be able, would politically be able to repeal NAFTA uh, is not sure. And uh, in a nice world, we just revert to NAFTA, and that would be as good as we can have in the circumstances. Yeah,
0: and then and then try again to improve it because NAFTA is twenty five years old; it doesn't have anything in it about digital trade and that sort of thing. But Pierre, I, I broadly agree with you. This, the revised NAFTA from the administration, is not a net improvement over the current, and those auto rules of origin are the they're the worst feature of the revised NAFTA for the reasons you point out. You know, the other day, uh, Larry Kudlow said, well, Democrats should be in favor of the revised NAFTA because these auto provisions help blue-collar Americans. I pointed out in a tweet that most blue-collar Americans don't make cars, but they do buy cars and trucks, and they're going to pay for this provision through higher prices.
2: A very simple uh, symptoms that NAFTA, too, is more Managed trade, than NAFTA one is just look at the number of pages. You know, NAFTA, uh, the original NAFTA had the 600 pages. Uh, The NAFTA 2.0 has 2,082 pages. So, you know, if you want to implement free trade, you don't need 2,000 pages, you know. In fact, between you and I, you would need a couple of lines, eh? (laughs) which is is, uh, Americans are free to export whatever they can export and to import whatever they want to import.
1: Well, we do have maybe another kind of – I don't want to use flashpoint – another inflection point or opportunity for change coming up. And and that's come from the announcement that President Trump and President Xi do plan to meet in Argentina uh, at the next G20 summit. So that would possibly have ramifications for our ongoing trade dispute with China – Maybe a two part question here. One is the sort of advisor question. So if you put on your advisor hat, and you're advising either President Xi of China or President Trump of the United States, what would you recommend to them going into that meeting? What should both countries be trying to achieve? And then maybe what do you expect to come out of that? Is there an opportunity for policy reform? Or is this just sort of one of these political meetings that happens and we'll be back to square one the day afterwards?
0: Well, there's obviously real differences between the two countries politically in their in their economic systems, and we have some genuine complaints uh, about China's economic programs, especially how they handle foreign investment and intellectual uh, property. The answer is to bring pressure on them through the WTO. We've brought WTO cases in the past. We've won. China has modified its behavior. We can team up with other countries, Japan, the European Union, Canada, to bring pressure on them. We can we can go after specific Chinese companies that are violating intellectual property. The way this administration has approached it is a meat axe, machine gun approach, whatever metaphor you want. (laughs) Uh, And of course, it's caused a lot of collateral damage here in the United States, as we mentioned, U.S. producers, U.S. consumers. So I'm hopeful that they can come to some sort of agreement to back down from the trade war and for China to pursue some incremental reforms that will help satisfy a lot of the western countries so it'll depend on which faction in the white house sort of gains the upper hand the relative free traders or the real hardline trade warriors within the administration
2: yes we can uh, we can certainly still hope that the free trade wing the small free trade wing of the of the of the administration of the white house will, with time, you know, make headways and perhaps win the debate. It speaks more to uh, Trump's ignorance of economics and probably his populism also. You know, it's it's good to have uh, scapegoats. eh? So uh, the foreigners are scapegoats and the Chinese are scapegoats. Moreover, don't forget that, you know, when you look at the evolution of Peter Navarro, you know, from uh, 2007 until now, his main concern has not really been trade. It has been the military, uh, what he sees as the military threat of China. So Peter Navarro himself is as much a military hawk against China as he is a protectionist.
0: Yeah. He's not a trade economist.
2: No, he's not a trade economist at all. You know, I would, I would, I would hope that we would have surprises and i think we should we should remain open to surprises i eh? perhaps who knows you know perhaps uh, people who claim that uh, trump is a free trader perhaps they're right you know i'd be very surprised because he's been demonstrating for 2 years that he is wrong that that he is a protectionist and that he doesn't understand actually the the arguments in favor of free trade uh, but then you know if if it evol- you know if there is a good evolution we should be uh, happy with this now when the uh, head of China, Chinese government and uh, President Trump meet, I think, you know, I, I agree with what Dan said, you know, we could hope that they just back off and that they return us closer to the uh, equilibrium we had before with the or you know, our settling disputes and this sort of thing that would be much better than what we have now. Again, you know would not want to bet too much money on these two horses you know we have basically two protectionists eh? the US government uh, Donald Trump and uh, the China that's that's what they are. So let's hope that uh, they can, you know because they have pressures exerted on them by their own, often producers now, because consumers are silent as usual. So let's hope that uh, these pressures will force them to back off. Uh, I would prefer to think that free trade is on a firmer uh, ground than that, though.
1: I think a lot of our focus, and I would say fairly and rightly so, has been on US and China, or the USMCA, the sort of NAFTA 2.0 conversation. One thing that caught my eye, uh, this was just yesterday or maybe even this morning, was a CNBC report about the possibility of home prices falling as much as 25% in Hong Kong as a result of trade disputes if that's not resolved by next year or something, something to that effect. Uh, and whether or not that that's true or an accurate forecast is sort of beside the point. But it occurred to me as I read that, we often miss the broader global dynamics of the largest economies in the world sort of having a massive trade dispute, right? There's a lot of spillover effects. Uh, Europe is probably sort of sitting there feeling a lot of those effects, whether it's Mercedes exports or, or just other spillovers. So broad question, you guys can take this wherever you want, but which spillover effects maybe are... The most relevant right now or the most obvious? Or if you're a US policymaker, what should you be paying attention to and what should you be concerned about in terms of the rest of the world that's just sort of watching these sorts of debates unfold?
0: Yeah, Chad, that's a that's a great question. I think the immediate effects for Americans are seeing disruptions in in prices, prices going up for washing machines, as Pierre mentioned. There was one report that showed the reconstruction costs from the hurricanes, Hurricane Florence and others, are 20 to 30 percent higher because of the Trump tariffs on things like furniture, cabinet counters, gypsum that goes into drywall. Americans are feeling that. And then the knock on effects of not only retaliatory tariffs, but as you mentioned, kind of a chill in global economic growth because of this when the world's two largest economies are going head to head on a trade war. And so the front page stories recently are a global slowdown. And of course, what affects U.S. exports actually more than foreign tariffs is foreign growth. And as foreign growth slows in Europe and China, demand for U.S. exports is going to slow. So we're we're all in this together, and you're seeing markets be more upset, and that's something the president seems to understand. He, he was bragging about the stock market a few months ago, but now we've had this upheaval. And so maybe all this, the silver lining might be that all this works in favor of the White House taking a, a more economically enlightened but more politically sensitive approach to this and backing off this self-destructive trade war.
2: Yes. Let us let me take the pessimistic side, as I have already <laughs> a couple of times, this might be what will happen, what Dan explained, and I hope this is what happens, that the economic slowdown will bring both the Chinese and U.S. government, you know, to back down. But another Another possible outcome would be a world recession, of course, uh, caused precisely by this by this trade war. Then you know uh, all bets are off, eh? because the the usual reaction of national governments to trade wars is not to open borders, eh? it's to it's to it's to close borders. Uh, I would be also concerned about uh, another worldwide effect of what's going on now. It's the fact that the United States used to be beacon of liberty. And uh, uh, although uh, the position of the U.S. government on trade has been ambiguous for the last uh, 200 years uh, uh, about, <laughs> uh, it is still true that since the war, the U.S. government has had been the one that had been pushing for trade liberalization. World War II, yes. World War II, of course, yes. And, uh, you know, this, uh, I think this helped actually the influence of the United States in the world. And I think it is a tragedy. To see what we are seeing now, you know, apparently the Chinese uh, Foreign Affairs minister or some apparatchik there uh, a few months ago uh, quoted Adam Smith to the uh, <laughs> U.S. Trade Representative, uh, which is of course the world upside down, and they don't believe in Adam Smith more than more than uh, Donald Trump. The difference might be that some people there have actually read Adam Smith, while I doubt that President Trump has. But I think that the political impact of Uh, the trade uh, disputes now uh, risk being uh, dramatic, even if we don't consider the possibility of war with China, which would be, of course, the ultimate uh, disaster.
1: And before we wrap up here, I do want to remind our listeners, we still have what's on tap coming. So don't turn off that dial as soon as the questions have been answered. Make sure you stick around. I've got one kind of another big-picture question for you guys, and this is another put-your-policy-advisor hat on. Let's say we hop in a car, drive across the bridge to downtown D.C., and I just say, okay, we can go to any agency or congressional office you want. We can go to the White House. We're going to drop you off at the door. You're going to walk in with a one-page memo. What advice do you give to U.S. policymakers going forward on trade? What's the one thing, maybe in the short or near term, that's kind of achievable, that could happen in a, in an ideal world within the next six months or so
2: that you would recommend? I know. I would immediately say, wait, Dan is coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, always good advice. Thank
0: you, Pierre. Well, I would have a very quick agenda. We need to back off these trade wars and stay away from auto tariffs. This would be economic disaster. Uh, Congress needs to reassert itself and its authority over trade policy, and stop this administration from making these irresponsible threats. Let's negotiate a free trade agreement with Great Britain once they get out of the European Union. And I've got a paper on recent paper. I was paper going to say you've got something us. to say about that very so, point. I think. So a little bit of self advertisement for my paper. But I'd say the final thing is they need to read Pierre's new book. And uh, as as I Don Boudreau and I wrote in in the foreword. Uh, Pierre Lemieux has written an essential book for our time and for decades to come. This is a book that's very timely. It addresses everything you see on CNBC and read in the Wall Street Journal today. But he touches on enduring principles of human liberty, of economic insight developed over the centuries and applies it to, to real world problems. So this is a timely book with a long shelf life.
2: And I would like actually to thank Mercatus Center and especially uh, Dan for uh, the help I had in uh, in the cooperation from Mercatus I had in uh, writing this book. So uh, as uh, a former president would have said, I have not done this alone.
1: Well, that sounds like a great note to end on now that we've given our listeners homework. Go find the book. We'll link to it in our show notes, uh, so you'll you'll have an easy time finding where you can locate the book. That'll be it for today. I'd like to thank our guests for joining us and sharing your all's insights, as always. And for our listeners, if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or episode ideas, you know where to find me, at Chad M. Reese, all one word, on Twitter. Or you can email me at creece at mercatus.gmu.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. And now the moment I know that you've all been waiting for, I am joined by co-host for What's on Tap, Kate Delanois. Kate, for us today, I have from Avery Brewing, Anniversary Edition 23. It's a 100% Brett-fermented dark farmhouse ale. So that's a lot of words. We'll go ahead and pour that and start tasting it. And in the meantime, why don't you start getting us going and let our listeners know what's going on at Mercatus this week?
3: We've got some great stuff out this week, Chad. First up this week, we've got a couple new pieces on occupational licensing. So Matt Mitchell is going to be submitting testimony to the Ohio state legislator talking about what occupational licensing and the barriers that it's creating in the Buckeye State. And then we also have research out from Ed Timmons and Darwin Deo looking at the impact that occupational licensing has on the overall economy. So those are both up today. I encourage people to go and check them out.
1: Great that you mentioned that. I want to point our listeners back. Some of you may remember we had some folks from Illinois agencies that actually regulate kind of occupational and professional licensing in their state. So if you liked that episode, definitely go check out these papers. And or if you read these papers and like what you hear and want to hear more about it, uh, go back and check out our Illinois occupational licensing episode.
3: And then we've also got some new research out on income inequality. And so it's looking at how income inequality is measured. And it finds that, you know, there's a lot of things that go into creating income inequality. And some of them are easy to measure. Some of them are not. And the authors of the study are saying that usually people tend to focus on the things that are easier to measure for obvious reasons. But if you pull in everything, the income inequality gap may not actually be as big as some people think.
1: That's important. because I feel like you get the phrase income inequality it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And it's really easy to kind of settle on. Is the economy equal? Is it unequal? Are incomes equal or unequal? But it sounds like as you're pointing out, there's a lot more to it. And there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into a lot of these estimates.
3: Something I know our listeners will enjoy is the release of next week's Conversations with Tyler. Tyler spoke with Paul Romer, and he is the first of two Nobel laureates that we're going to be having on the show. So Paul and Tyler spoke, and then some of the folks may have even gotten a sneak preview of the live conversation we had here with Daniel Kahneman and Tyler Cowan. So that'll be releasing a few weeks after the Romer conversation.
1: And certainly not to take anything away from the Romer conversation, but I am particularly interested in the Kahneman conversation station. I think Thinking Fast and Slow which is kind of his famous book. Probably one of my favorite books I've ever read. So, if you're interested, if you liked that book, if you ever heard anything about Daniel Kahneman, strongly recommend you listen to to both of these episodes. They should be good ones. Indeed. Well, with that in mind, speaking of good ones, what do you think?
3: I would say this is not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't even really know where to start in describing this. You mentioned pungent when you opened it and that's I think that's the word. That's fair.
1: Yeah, so I probably should have warned you. I mentioned Anniversary Edition. This is the 2016, so this is an aged bottle. It is kind of like a fun beer. I thought it would be exciting. Uh, I'm going to agree with your take at the top. It's weird. It's definitely dark. It's not as sour as I thought. It's a little more on the funky side, which makes sense, I guess, because it is a farmhouse, technically. I'm going to go 3.5 out of 5. I think I am giving this some novelty points there. Uh, (laughs) Based on your face, I'm guessing you're going lower.
3: I was... I'm going to go two, oh. and that will include some novelty points. Oh, wow.
1: So that may be your <laughs> lowest rating yet. I'd have to go I, back and check the archives.
3: I think so. Uh, it's If you're looking for something different, this is it.
1: <laughs> it's very different. Well, a swing and a miss on the beer, but it sounds like we've got a great lineup of things coming out, especially on the conversations with Tyler, guests that I mentioned I'm particularly excited about. So thanks, as always, for joining, Kate.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Cheers. Cheers.